Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for November 2016. I am writer, hyphen, determined to keep a podcast about movies going despite the world ending in a fiery ball of flames, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer, hyphen, nasty woman, <laughs> hyphen, glitter-farting troll. Interesting. I, I have a feeling that we're going to have a callback to that very soon. That, it's my attempt to keep a podcast about movies going despite the world ending. <laughs> it works. It's working. Okay. Uh, and we will be joined by our very special guest very soon. But before we are, the movies of this month, the new releases, one of which is Doctor Strange, which is the new Marvel movie co-written by Hyphenates alum C. Robert Cargill, who was our guest back in 2012. So I find it kind of funny that the Marvel films get accused of being more of the same over and over again, because I, I gravitate towards them over the majority of big budget cinema for the exact opposite reason. And we've talked about this before, but I find the combination of the self-contained stories and the shared universe, which again, 10 years ago was unheard of on this sort of scale. I find that really fascinating. So I'm torn between the things I loved about this film, which is the humor, the inventiveness of all the mystical stuff, the, the very imaginative third act, with the slight fatigue that even I'm feeling at the origin story structure. As a whole, really dug the film, but yeah, I felt, I felt something, uh, something gnawing at the back of my ear. Well, I hope that wasn't an infested cinema. Um, that has happened to me and it's never good. Sure. So I read an interesting piece this weekend, which made me think about this point about the the universe, the cinematic universe as we call it now, mm -hmm. really began with Harry Potter. That's the first big project we see in big budget cinema that is doing interconnected stories. Yes, it's a book adaptation, but the sense of the expanded universe um, that we see from the perspective of different characters and it's really interesting that we now have a kind of mcu version of harry potter mm. um, which I, we're going to talk about next and the doctor strange i saw it before the election so it literally feels like it doesn't exist isn't that <laughs> it's so odd if only could we could reverse time on if only we could reverse time. i you know i think dormammu has a donald trump like aspect he is just like a universal crybaby <laughs> whiner who looks like a an upset toddler and i felt that the third act had this brilliant idea and then somewhat lost its impact by having a cgi fat-faced toddler as the ultimate big bad so i felt like there were moments where the film just put its its energy in the wrong place beginning for me with the character of dr strange mm -hmm. who is a spoiled neurosurgeon who gets magic powers because he wants them uh which seems like the worst superhero origin story I've ever come across apart from Tony Stark. So while Marvel has this reputation for being super liberal and super interesting and snappy and bantery, I think the indulgence of these man-baby heroes, I, I'm so done with it. I should also add as a qualification and instantly lose every female and possibly most of the male listeners of Hell is for Hyphenates that I am not a Benedict Cumberbatch fan. I thought his performance in this film was okay, but I also somewhat enjoyed the sensation of watching him having to be second best Benedict. Right, yes. So, uh, so the, the you mean Wong? Ben Wong, who yes. steals every scene he's in. Uh, he's a Beyonce fan, so he's totally on trend for 2016. <laughs> and I want the next film to be about him. I 
I'm a huge Chiwetel Ejiofor fan and have been since going back to Amistad and mm-hmm. his even his stage work in London. And I was so angry at the end of the film. You know, you it it lied to you. It was like, oh, we've created this great character, given it to a powerful, you know, Oscar-nominated actor who he's going to be the loyal friend, the next head of the organization. And then they just turned him into yet another you know, thinly motivated, racist bad guy of the Idris Elba, Samuel L. Jackson variety. And I want more than that from this supposedly liberal Marvel universe. Sure. And this is probably a very weird thing to admit, but I I was actually uh, quite invested in in that character's story because um, I kind of agreed with him. Like he was this moral absolutist (laughs) and I was like, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't. There shouldn't be any compromise on this because it'll open up. So, like, I was yeah. By the end of it, I was like, maybe that means I'll become the supervillain in my own uh, story. But um, no, I was... yeah, I think we should start our podcast position from now on. Should be like, I back the supervillain. <laughs> I stand with Idris. I stand with Chewie. <laughs> <laughs> the, and they are often the more interesting characters. They're given the more interesting language. Um, he looked super cool so i think the cloak chose badly right (laughs) the cloak was probably my favorite bit of the film Mm. uh i don't know whether we're going to talk about tilda or we're just going to avoid that whole messy subject uh i I don't know like i was i'm I'm willing to go there but it might add another uh 15 minutes to the show if we It's uh, it's look. It might be a middle topic for another day because I think it's. The, the... <laughs> Let's make it a middle topic next okay. month. Excellent. Oh, Tilda. I also found both with this and with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, where I guess we're going next. That there was a certain point where I just found myself sitting back, going, "Wow." computer programming uh and i was corrected on this by a friend of mine who's a filmmaker uh who knows one of the artists on dr strange he said no there was months of design work that went into it Mm. and i totally honor and salute the enormous production design team that worked on it but it it leaves me cold um and i came out and the first thing i thought was wow finally hollywood they've cracked it they've done it they've made a film that is as good as the toy kaleidoscope i had when i was five (laughs) and i don't think you're meant to feel that i think it's meant to feel profound and like it's actually saying something interesting about time and space Mm. and it just made me feel like being five at christmas which i get uh, not even as good as that attraction so that's fair enough. Um, look, I'm going to take, need a deep breath before this segue because I've been um, <clears throat> working on this. <clears throat> From one film set in New York but filmed in England, centred on a wizard character as played by a posh British actor who once played Stephen Hawking, starred in The Other Boleyn Girl as Star- Scarlett Johansson's husband and was first nominated for an Oscar in 2014, to another. Fantastic piece of work. Thank you. Thank you. Let's move on to talking about trolls. I think we've covered Fantastic Beasts. Okay. <laughs> is, is that, <laughs> that's the entirety I, of the... I have, I have major complicated feels about this film, which is not something that I ever thought that I would say about an, an HPU film. I reviewed the last four Harry Potter films for Sight and Sound. I think David Yates is a is a serious craftsman. I think he's one of the best workers with CGI in the business. Mm -hmm. The CGI in his films always feels like it has material presence um, and that belongs in the the muggle or nomad 
which is the worst coinage ever, makes it sound, I guess it's meant to suggest that the Americans don't have the queen or something. Uh, no badge world. I've always felt like J.K. Rowling's whore is in the right place. But in this film, I feel like somehow in between her whore and her screenwriting brain, something went seriously astray. And so I guess I, I'm just, I'm team Credence. And okay. so the end of the film left me with a horrible taste in my mouth. That was not just Johnny Depp's hair dye. And I felt like, you know, the struggle between these two stories, one of which is this quite charming sort of Dr. Doolittle comedy mm. with, you know, rhinos in heat on ice. It's obviously going to be the next theme park. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let your kids loose in that one, American parents. Um, and then this extremely dark and serious story about child abuse in religious communities and high level paedophilia and corrupt government organizations. Mm. Like, uh, and then the you know the darkening 1930s world uh, combined with the kind of 1930s jazz era in New York you know I admire that ambition but I think it it ends up throwing away quite a serious story in order just to get its its big finish and so I was extremely arm crossed by the end having been initially very charmed particularly by the 19 the New York element the 1930s mm. New York element um Alison Sudol is my definitely my new crush <laughs> yeah so as Queenie but what a mess I look I agree in some ways and disagree in others in that I was I was really won over by the aesthetic, by the characters. Um, you know, I agree with what you said about Yates. I think he, he crafts worlds that, I mean, it, it's good that we saw other directors tackle the Potter universe because it, it sort of helped appreciate the ones who really got it right and really added something to it. I, I think my my big problem was that the, the structure, I mean, it, it's sort of similar to what you were saying about it. You know, Rowling is so rooted in the, the novel-slash-chapter format. And so this sort of has this disjointed episodic format that doesn't quite mesh. And mm. I wasn't really sure what we were moving towards. There was a point at which I thought the film was over and we hadn't got to the third act yet. I don't know. I was so, I was so won over by so many of its elements that I didn't mind so much. Ultimately, I haven't figured out which is my favourite film in which Colin Farrell and Johnny Depp play alternate versions of the same character. It's either this or the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, maybe what Fantastic Beasts needed was Heath Ledger. Yes, yes. I'm, uh, I'm holding out hope for the sequel, but yeah, you never but, know. And I mean, I mean that seriously. Like, there was a slight pathos gap for me, which I, I never felt. I, other people had a lot of problems with their acting styles in the Harry Potter films, but somehow for me, that combination of these very well-known British stage and screen actors with these, these young people coming to the screen very early had a kind of pathos for me and, and that grew as the actors grew in stature and as the stories grew in complexity and with this somehow having a very well-known actor who's you know an oscar winner and looks like a duck front and center yeah again it felt like it was slightly putting its emphasis in the wrong place i thought i love jacob kowalski and i would be super happy for the next four films to focus on <laughs> his relationship with queenie or for the the head of Makusa, played by Carmen Ogojo, being criminally underused, mm. to have a story of her own because she just had immense power and screen presence, even though her character direction seemed to have been mainly head wrap. Um, <laughs> so, as you say, there's like fantastic inventiveness and character strength in the ensemble, but again, it feels like 
these films are relentlessly choosing to put their emphasis on, in the wrong place mm. on the, the character who has the most. And surely we know from screenwriting that that's, that's just the wrong choice. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. It'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where the next four, for God's sakes, are films in the series <laughs> head um, <laughs> and who, who they choose to focus on. Um, yeah. Now, I have not seen Trolls, so I can, ah. I can only assume that it's a film about all the people who run the world as of 2016. It is. It's a documentary. It Excellent. It's a documentary about the people who run the world as of 2016, but he- here's the major point, Lee. Mm. They are the villains. Ah. They are the baddies who are not the focal characters. I see. So, so... Revelation. The- <laughs> <laughs> so our focal characters are the the coalition of the people who stand up to the baddies who run the world, the people who are currently um, at Standing Rock Camp, the people who are sitting on the streets in Portland, the people who are at the Maricona Mine, you know, uh, the people who campaigned against Proposition 8 in San Francisco. And I may be overstating this for a film that is actually uh, an adaptation, one of Hollywood's favourite things, an adaptation of a plastic toy. <laughs> <laughs> the famous trolls, one of which I was once compared to on the Toronto subway. I did have green hair at the time. Right. Uh, so obviously I feel very personally invested in, in this story. <laughs> people maligned for looking like plastic toys. I went into it with literally zero expectations. I didn't even know that it was based on these plastic characters who were far less ubiquitous now than lego Mm -hmm. and perhaps because of the low expectations instantly charmed um it combines very dynamic contemporary animation with a very handmade look so the main character princess poppy who is voiced by anna kendrick scrapbooks and don't think the film doesn't make fun of her for doing so (laughs) but it uses a lot of hand-drawn scrapbook style animation combined with the more high gloss animation that we associate with the lego movie and so on and that softening of the edges was part of what won me over in combination with a story that is about a group of people the the trolls who are happy and love dancing and singing but do so to build community and love each other um, who uh, attract the attention of a group of what are called Bergen in the film. And I think Norway must be getting pretty sick of this. So first Frozen steals a bunch of Norwegian locations and Sami culture and recasts them as American. And now one of its main and most attractive cities has been used as the name for a group of what, what are actually what we would think of as trolls or ogres. So more grotesque characters who are kind of lumpen, who have this extremely hierarchical social system in which there are servants and, you know, people yell at their children and and all that bad stuff. (laughs) Um, And so they discover that if you eat trolls, trolls are delicious and they make you feel happy. And they're the only thing that makes you feel happy. And this struck me as such a good analogy (laughs) for the right wing that I was just like, sold! And then the trolls, there's a troll called Guy Diamond who speaks in auto-tune. He's voiced by Kunal Nayar and he farts glitter. And (laughs) this just struck me as being the gayest children's film ever. Um, When the main 
characters, so Princess Poppy and Hatch, who is a lefty bro dude who thinks everything is terrible all the time and is grey and doesn't think dancing and partying works, voiced by Justin Timberlake. Brilliant, ironic casting. Um, when they finally get together, they sing True Colours, which is a huge anthem for LGBT teens because of Cindy Lauper's True Colours um, foundation. So the, it's full of... I guess they're in-jokes in some way and not everyone's going to read them, but it, in a very cold world, this film warmed my heart, even as I was constantly going, oh, I wonder if that's going to be a lunchbox. Like, stop it! <laughs> it also, I think, there is a crossover with the Bergens. The Bergens are not just treated as soulless, horrible monsters. There is the, Ber- the Bergens have to learn to be happy themselves through a beautiful character vo- voiced by Zoe Deschanel doing her Zoe Deschanel thing where she suddenly lets rip with this huge voice that, that blows you off the screen. Mm. Um, so it injected some levity into the world while having this constant relentless self. So, you know, my brain is definitely in two halves about it. I want to be able to fart glitter. Mm -hmm. If they actually sold that as capacity, I would be into it. It it doesn't seem to be a franchise. I don't, you know, that was a relief as well to see something that doesn't seem to be intent on actually building a thousand year Reich in my brain, (laughs) to put it lightly with my usual uh, levity of touch there. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And it it made me think that actually, like children's films, we've had like Box Trolls, Utopia, Frozen, that that's where like liberal politics seem, seems to have gone and it, you know that's important because young people are seeing these films on a very very big scale they probably reach the biggest audience we know that from box office figures mm-hmm. and so having these messages uh of tolerance fun caring for each other being given in ways on a very large scale very broadly you know that's our last bastion when superhero films which you know, if we look back to the 90s, started with the X-Men as the first franchise that came through and was very much about that message of tolerance and looking back at history. Like, you know, Brian Singer never missed the opportunity to have a Nazi reference where he could have one to warn us about what happens mm. where we mistreat people who are different to now putting the ubermensch in the main role in every possible situation. Like, I'm go- I'm down with the children's animations. Wow, I'm I'm gonna have to check this out. Finding glitter and all. Yeah, you have to like disco. I am just gonna say that if you have a low BG's tolerance, there are pills for that. Okay. <laughs> not legally allowed to say what they are. <laughs> <laughs> see us after but, uh, the show. Yeah, yeah, it's like after the get down. It's really interesting to see something that's embracing this idea that disco was this moment that brought people together before you know it became a very commercial mainstream form, not just in a hedonistic way, but that what looks like hedonism can actually be creating a really strong, beautiful community. And I think oh, casting Jeffrey Tambor as Princess Poppy's dad, like, you can't get queerer than that right now. Like, so awesome. So full props to the the trolls. So children's animation may be our last refuge, but is there more that cinema could be doing? Filmmakers that we could be listening to or important messages that we could be heeding in as the world 
spins out of control and jumps into a handbasket to hell. Michael Moore seems to have become the de facto leader of the left in the US. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a good idea or a bad idea, but at least he's speaking up. Um, what, what else do you guys see going on, or do you think that cinema can be doing? Actually, we should uh, introduce, oh. we have our, our guest has joined us. <laughs> so when we chat off there, we forget the audience isn't here with us. Uh, Jocelyn yeah. Morehouse, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Um, and... Sorry for just plunging you into that. <laughs> Go for it. Urgent, urgent. <laughs> You've joined us in the era yes, of I... Trump. Thank you for... Yes, yes. And I think we're all still traumatised. Mm. Well, I think America is obviously traumatised. Uh, well, half of them. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, perhaps they'll be a little, a little too traumatised to be able to address... Um, their shock in film immediately. We'll probably see their, see their delayed reaction in about a year from now. But, uh, you know, anybody can make fast films. They might be able to get some um, interesting uh, expressions of horror out there. Mm. Yeah. What do you think? I, I don't know. And I've been, I've been kind of struggling with this because I take a lot of solace in satire, both as a writer and a, and a viewer. And... I'm I'm just like personally I'm just well past the point at which it provides any comfort whatsoever. Uh, there was this Onion article the other day that I want to quote because it really uh, it jumped out at me. It was a uh, uh, Democratic Party aiming to reconnect with working class Americans with new Hamilton inspired Lena Dunham web series. And yeah. <laughs> that's been kicking around I my love, head. <laughs> I love that. I love that the cast of Hamilton. Yeah. Just stop what they were doing to to talk to to Mike Pence. That was just incredible. It was it, <laughs> But it the was problem brilliant. for satirists is it turns out that Donald Trump sent Mike Pence to Hamilton to create a scenario in which the cars clap back at him so then Trump could be outraged about it on Twitter. Wait. We're literally being we have a president whose job is to troll us. Do you think he really I don't believe he did that. I, I, I think that's just sort of I, I think, a recovery um, uh, lie that's being spread <laughs> to try and make it look like he's got some kind, some kind of control. I'm sure it was just a night out for Mike and his kids. I, I, th- I think he was calculated <laughs> when he pounced on it after it had happened, but um, I don't, oh, I I don't know if he's I don't know if he's so uh, such a, a grand wizard chess master that he was uh, that that many steps ahead. But the the of course. <laughs> but the um the the, the thing I have that the problem is I mean there's been so much talk uh, you know from pundits and all the people who you know whose job it is to assess and reassess these things of uh, who was living in a bubble were the pollsters living in a bubble are the reporters living in bubbles and and there's a lot of bubble talk and I'm still thinking like the artists who are talking about the films that get made the Michael Moore films or the 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 art house whatevers. Um, are we just talking to ourselves? Like how much of that is going to cut through? Because, you know... It... Well, yes, are we preaching to the converted? Mm. Yes. I mean, that is the danger. Um, but, yeah, we've got, we're going to have to try and be smarter. Filmmakers in particular and, and those who do um, uh, the sort of television that people like to binge watch, they're going to have to get really clever if they want to get the message across because that's where that's where we might cross over and find an audience that isn't in our bubble, but can be reached somehow mm. if the story is good enough and the message is sort of hidden in there. You know, I think that's certainly a way that uh, we, that filmmakers in particular can, 
get a message out quickly and over a large area um, about spreading compassion and seeing each other as human beings. You know, that's something that film can do really well. Mm. I also think there's a moment of opportunity here. You know, Hollywood is a is a bubble in so many ways. And I think in the last couple of years since the Sony email leak, Hollywood has kind of had to hang its head and say, yes, we're a complete bubble and we lock ourselves in that bubble. So in the late 1930s and early 1940s, there was a group of people who had a huge impact on Hollywood cinema and they were East European refugees. Yes, absolutely. Um, who, not all of them were Jewish, many of them were, you know, Brecht cut, Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill got hired to write Hollywood musicals. Mm. So Hollywood Studios invited Sergei Eisenstein to come and adapt um, Theodore Dreiser. Um, There's there's a moment here where actually Hollywood, there's so much money, can in a sense become a city of sanctuary, the way that a lot of cities in the US are standing up and saying, we will remain a city of sanctuary for undocumented um, people and for refugees to put put its money in the right direction. And I mean, we're talking about people like Michael Curtiz, Billy Wilder. Those directors might be out there in America right now. They might be people who are struggling to leave Syria, who are struggling to leave Egypt, who are struggling even to leave Mexico or Guatemala to, to find those voices and to amp them up and just refresh Hollywood cinema. And that could be so exciting, you know, rather than retreating further in the bubble to say, okay, we're going to come and stand on the front line, not just for the WGA strike, but, but to try and do what we claim we do. Um, So that's my outsider's view, an outsider's view to America, which is what they need right now. Absolutely. There was some because I think sorry. we need someone other than Michael Moore in charge of American cinema. Like wow. I love the guy, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> he's uh, yeah he's so polarizing <laughs> that you know everything post bowling for Columbine. Like no matter how good it was, he was just so you know calcified as the voice of the left. It was like everyone knew what they thought of it before they'd seen the film. So so uh, yeah, but I, I don't know. Look, I I keep thinking back to somebody tweeted months and months ago that. Donald Trump looks like the villain in a film where the hero is a dog. And I keep, <laughs> which is so Back on to point. my animation argument. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and I keep thinking about that because one of the most baffling things about, about the US political scene at the moment is that the party of Reagan, which was, you know, so centered on fighting the Soviets and winning the Cold War, is now like, yeah, thanks Russia for hacking the Democrats. You know, thanks for having a say in who our president is and and the fact that these two thoughts can coexist makes me think that they can go along to a to a film and see a donald trump-like figure as the villain and not really connect it to the fact that that's who their president is so maybe in this in this conversation about maybe i'm getting too hung up on the idea that whatever art is created in the next four years has got a has got to shift the needle where it's just an expression it's just a way of uh it's not going to change anyone's mind. It's just any art we create in response to this nightmare is just going to be a, a therapy session. Well, I think historically, uh, I, I think there is hope if we look at history because in the past, you know, there were a lot of um, films that uh, reacted to the Cold War paranoia and I think um, definitely had an impact on the audiences. And the Vietnam era, the Vietnam War era, also produced some pretty amazing American films that really did, I think, help 
change the the you know the modern Americans' view and the rest of the world on on whether or not we should really be in that war and what it was doing to the young men who were forced to go there. Mm. And so you know there were movies. There were you know the the Deer Hunter and um, Apocalypse Now and they they had they definitely had an effect. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so I, don't, I think we'll see them, but we just we can't predict what they're going to be. For sure. Mm. <laughs> Mournful silence yeah. repeated. Yes, yeah. well, it's it's pretty upsetting, actually. I mean, I think I think it's almost too soon. We, like mm. you said, it's hard to find solace in satire. Even satire now isn't isn't doing it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if only we had a Paddy Chayefsky now, right? Who could just quickly oh, write yeah. something for us to express our rage. Uh, you know, that's why we are all clinging desperately to Michael Moore because yeah. <laughs> he's a lot angry, <laughs> angry man on the street. Yeah, <laughs> it would be great to see some anger back in back in American cinema, in American indie cinema, back in in the yeah. right place, like Mumblecore and you know the joke about Lena Dunham is partially funny because mm. it that, that that affectlessness, the idea that it's cool to even if you have politics, not express them or not feel them or only have them ironically, not put them on screen. Not not just rage, but also love and and just passion, to, to bring passion back as the mood in indie Absolutely. cinema. I mm. think that that would just be fantastic for cinema, but also well, would be. Yeah. to help people connect with that, as you say, Jocelyn, that if, if we keep making these films that are about alienated people, like, they're going to be alienating. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I think the new generation, the younger generation, uh, are definitely feeling extremely helpless and um, alienated and nihilistic, actually. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the films they're watching and the films they're making, because I'm, I'm quite um, in touch with what, young people want to make their films about. You know, my son is is a, an up-and-coming short film director and um, I, I also mentor other young filmmakers and they're all they're all pretty pessimistic about the future, you know. Mm. Every, everybody's coming up with dystopian um, mm. visions <laughs> uh, because it's so overwhelmingly depressing. Um, mm. I think this, this was a huge blow to the young people of um, – the de- of, of the world, really, the modern world, anyway, who are the, the people who actually know who Donald Trump is, uh, <laughs> uh, because of what he represents for us all. It, you know, it's all about greed and not not um, looking after each other and not looking out for those people who who just can't fend for themselves. It's it's it, it's every man for himself again, and that's a depressing worldview. Yeah, it's the like his success is basically the opposite to the lesson that every film we've ever watched has taught us. You can behave in the yeah. most awful way possible and you'll pay the price. And yet that's not what the real world is telling us. So that's a, that's a bitter pill to swallow. Well, maybe it's, we needed our eyes opened. Yeah. yeah. Except yeah. Iron Man, which teaches you, you can behave in the most appalling way possible as a billionaire and you get a beautiful girlfriend in an enormous building and you're indestructible. Yeah, I'm still Ooh. holding out. Hope uh, for, yes. That'll be my, my life. Um, <laughs> yes, but hopefully you wouldn't have to turn into a really scary uh, misogynist beast to get that. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Whatever it takes. You don't sound like. I'm working on it. I've got. I've got to survive in the new Trump world. Uh... <laughs> Jocelyn, please tell us uh, which filmmaker have you selected for your filmmaker of the month? Well, speaking of passionate filmmaking. Mm. Uh, I have chosen Nicholas Rogue, British filmmaker. 
his early films in particular were extremely, um, well, meaningful to me as a young filmmaker, as a young want-to-be filmmaker, uh, because I discovered... I discovered his films quite when I was probably in my early teens, at least that was the first one, mm-hmm. uh, which was called Walkabout. And I believe that my class in high school was taken on a school excursion to see it. Now, wow. at, that, at that point, I did not actually pay attention to who the director was. I didn't even bother looking at credits. I don't think I ever knew what a director was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew they were, I knew they were producers, and I thought they were the same thing as directors. Mm. Um, but I certainly was extremely uh, affected by, by that film. And it stayed with me so that when I did see his next film, which was The Man Who Fell to Earth. Oh, no, Don't Look Now. That's mm. right. Yeah, I saw them out of order, of course. The first one I saw after Walkabout was the one with David Bowie in it because <laughs> I was a teenage girl in the 70s. The first pop song that I had really paid attention to uh, when I heard it on the radio was Rebel Rebel, Mm. which was Bowie's song about, you know, an androgynous teenager. And I just thought that was so, so wild and rule-breaking. And then, of course, I saw David Bowie's music videos, which were pretty amazing in those days, fell completely in love with him, as you do. Mm. And <laughs> when I heard he was going to be in a movie, of course I rushed to see it, uh, which was The Man Who Fell to Earth. And I went to see the film and I was so blown away by the filmmaking that I did pay attention to who directed it this time. And I saw the name Nicholas Rogue. And, of course, there was no internet in those days, so I couldn't quickly Google him. I had to sort of do a bit of research and look at film magazines and film books. And I saw that he'd also done Walkabout and I – I became a rabid fan from that point on. I just wanted to ask a question coming literally down the line from the other side of the pond. Does does Nicholas Rogue have a sort of special reputation in Australia because of Walkabout? Is he? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes, actually he does. I, I For a long time, Walkabout was claimed as an Australian film. <laughs> we <laughs> loved it. It starred one of our legendary actors, John Mellion, and everybody fell in love with Jenny Agata. Mm. Is that how you say your name? I think Agatha? so, yeah. And, and it, uh, it started the career of David Gulpilil. Yeah. Yes. So we were very proud of it as Australians, and so we definitely claimed it as an Australian film, even though, actually, <laughs> I think it was mostly financed by overseas um, interests, but it was entirely lovingly filmed in Australia, and it did – it did turn David Gulpil into a huge um, world-famous star. You know, he was, ju- he was uh, discovered by Nicholas Rogue as a teenager performing in a dancing troupe, uh, and he just said this, you know, I have to put this young man on film. He's just extraordinary, and of course he was, and he's the heart of that film. Mm. I have a theory about... Nicholas Rogue. I don't know if it's too early in the conversation to get into theories. Yeah. Which is that dance is a really primary form for him. So I was reading his memoir or autobiography, his book about filmmaking, Mm. The World is Ever Changing. And in the section about editing, 
he makes this extraordinary observation about an American in Paris and the last 20 minutes of it. Um, And he quotes from Gene Kelly's notes. And he says, this is how Gene Kelly is the the person who knows how you edit physical action and the linking of scenes with movement. And I sort of started going back in my head through the films I've been watching. And I was thinking about like the opening of The Man Who Fell to Earth after the credits, that extraordinary scene of David Bowie just walking and he's yeah. sort of trying to remember how to walk and thinking about walkabout as a film about walking. Like, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, Don't Look Now as a film about walking that so many of his films and the kinetic action of, in, in The Witches as well. Mm. Uh, very kinetic. Almost, almost kinetic. like ballets that they're at, you know, he's very good with dialogue, but they're at their best when they move into this kind of extraordinary ballet of the camera and the performer. Well, the, um, I think you've got it there. It's, it's the way he uses his camera. The camera is extremely rhythmic, um, extremely musical mm. in the way it weaves in and out. It zooms in and out whenever it damn well feels like it. It, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't wait for law. You know those rules of oh, you have to motivate the, the movement of the camera. He's like, no, you don't. <laughs> you just use it like you use anything else. If I want to crash zoom into into your your mouth I will <laughs> or if I want to if I want to suddenly whoosh away and look at a light for no apparent reason I will and um you know he does express so much unspoken emotion with mm. his camera and I think that's why I fell in love with his work and I and I I do agree I think he's a very musical director and um perhaps that's why I really connect with him because I often think that filmmaking has to have a musical element to it, um, even if you're doing a silent movie. Mm. <laughs> it has to have a grace to it, a sort mm. of fluid poetry, visual poetry, and, and a rhythm that you follow. Uh, I, not that it has to be consistent. I mean, it can change, but it's definitely like a piece of music. I think I think it's quite telling that after he, because he got his start as like the T-boy at Marylebone Studios. I think I'm I, saying that right. Uh, yeah. and, and then learned... He learned uh, editing, like he sort of, I think he became an appre- yeah. apprentice editor and then became an apprentice cameraman for David Lee yeah, and he, Roger Yeah, he really worked his way up. Yeah, and, and, but I, th- I think in particular not just working his way up through like one path, but editing and, mm. and you can sort of see that when he, you know, in, in, in Walkabout how he'll juxtapose the killing of a kangaroo against a professional butcher or he'll sort of zoom in yes. on the vaginal tree crevices, you know, that that's somebody who knows how the film is going to look at the end while he's on set. Like he's, he's, he's well, he does. Mm. Yeah. I, I believe he has it in his head the whole time. Well, he certainly did. Yeah. In, in the early films, you're right. His time as an editor taught him how shots go together. Mm. So he was definitely, already thinking about the editing room when he was when he was um, filming his actors he also did some sound editing he started out one of his early jobs was syncing sound Um, yeah Uh, and he has a really strong sense of how to use sound in the films as well you using non-sync sound having sound bridges having internal diegetic sound so yes Yes. That sense of how the I, and that I think that adds to what you were saying, Jocelyn. It's not just that the the camera is so rhythmic; we partially feel it because of how he's using music, whether it's the music oh, yeah. of, of dialogue, and he loves to have those snappy staccato 
rhythms that speak to his long friendship with with Harold Pinter and and love of of British theatre but then that incredibly creative use of of music throughout and maybe that's why the man who fell to earth is you know it, one of the candidates for his masterpiece so mm. what an extraordinary oh, yeah. it's, it is sort of like the pre-credit sequence of the man who fell to earth isn't it just this series of enormous explosions going up and up and up and then oh, it's, it's just beautiful downward trends <laughs> yeah um but to, and the sound the sound design the sound design, just the music, yeah. but the uh the way he uses sound effects uh dialogue uh, strange little weird sounds that just you're not always sure what they are, but he knows the psychology of them, mm. and so he knows how to mm. how to create the entire uh, sort of world that that just envelops you, so that you feel like you're in this sort of well. Some people would say um, you know psychedelic trance, but I would say you know incredibly um, potent dream. He's he's one of those directors that really gets under your skin. I think he he kind of reaches into your unconscious. Well, certainly mine, anyway. Mm. Uh, I can speak truth. That, that's definitely how I feel about his films. They just reach in under my skin and grab my psyche and just drag me along. And I'm <laughs> I'm always grateful, but I'm a little traumatized sometimes. <laughs> I feel I sort of grew up with the second generation of that trauma with being told by my parents and friends of my friends, oh, don't look now. You know, I don't think I've ever been more scared to see a film as a, as a you know, as a teenager, as a grown up. You know, I'd, I'd heard a lot about Rosemary's Baby. I'd heard a lot about the birds. But yeah. Don't Look Now yeah. was the one that had been in a way like implanted under my skin before I'd, I, you know, I, I wasn't born when it came out. And it... <laughs> I, it's become a kind of a kind of cultural marker of that kind of filmmaking. When you see something like Under the Skin, it's kind of aiming for that same subliminal blink in your miss it effect, isn't it? Mm. Well, and it goes straight to your primal your primal self. That all those things you're really scared about. Um, <laughs> and in, in that case, it's 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 creepy alleyways in Venice and. Small people in red raincoats and creepy psychics, uh, <laughs> premonitions of death. I mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant story and a brilliant piece of filmmaking. Um, and of course, it's very famous for its notorious sex scene. Mm. Uh, and uh, I remember hearing about it before I saw it and not knowing what to expect uh, because it was such a famous sex scene. And there are all these, you know, rumors going around oh, they really had sex, you know, mm. which is not true, evidently. But I think what it was, it was so unexpectedly beautiful and intimate and it felt like a real couple having sex. But, of course, they cut away all the time to mm -hmm. post-sex, which is a brilliant piece of editing. Mm. It cuts from this sort of pretty tragic, broken couple who've just lost their child and they're trying to sort of heal and find their love for each other again to sort of what it, it cuts with straight after they've had sex and they're going out to dinner mm. and they're doing all those couple things in the elevator and uh, or just getting ready and um, it's just so sweet and moving with just these two human beings being just so beautifully intimate with each other that I think it's that's why it stays with people. It, it's it, not just that you get to see them with nothing on, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's more the beauty that happens between them. 
It also felt incredibly <laughs> familiar because I, I, I've seen all the films and TV shows that have been influenced by that scene and the way it's edited. Oh and mm. so when I watched so it, I was like, oh, this is the original. This is where it all started. You know, this, this. It is. Yeah. This idiosyncratic cross, cross cutting. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. And that, and he, and I can see his influence across so many filmmakers, uh, that, that, that right, right from the beginning, right from performance, where he's just jumping around in time and through reality and with non-diegetic sound, and it's uh, I, yeah, yeah, those uh, particularly those first five or so films that just you know cemented themselves. They were so into... creative, weren't they? Mm. And so brave, and they broke all the rules of narrative film, and they did not, you know, he he really played with, as you said, time being fluid. You could just go back and forth and explore the story from so many different points in time, but still tell a really powerful story that you don't feel like you've been cheated. Mm. You just sort of, you're, it's like you're inside the head of one or two of the characters, and and you're sort of being told the story from different different times in in the journey. He didn't do that in Walkabout, as far as I remember, but he did do it particularly in Don't Look Now, because which makes sense because a lot of that was about premonition. and so But you didn't realise that half of the film, you know, half of what she's seeing is actually that she's a bit psychic. Mm. You know, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to do a spoiler here, but that yeah. she, she starts, well, I just did, I guess. But she's seeing things that are going to happen later, but of course she doesn't know that and, and thus the confusion. Mm. I, I wanted to, uh, to just quickly talk about the, the sort of the rest of his career because it's not widely talked about uh, with the exception of the witches, which I think certainly uh, yes. stuck out in the memory of, of my generation and, and, you know, probably a generation below because, uh, you know, it's a Roald Dahl adaptation. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I've watched that with my kids. It's, it's fantastic. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there are so many it's films. It's not as in... depressing as the book though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a happy ending. Evidently Roald Dahl was very angry about that. Yeah. I can, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> But post-bad timing, there are a lot of films that I, I thought would at least be remembered, if not more fondly, yeah. than just at least remembered, like Eureka with Gene Hackman or Cast Away with Oliver Reed, Track 29 with Gary Oldman and Christopher yeah. Lloyd. And, and I mention the actors because usually, you know, it's actors that, that people remember. And mm. there are so many films that, that he made right up until 2007 that haven't lost... He, I'm trying to... You can still tell they're rogue films. Like you can see the right. chronologically <laughs> eclectic editing. It's a mainstay throughout his career. Um, and I'm not sure if, if he lost his edge around that or if cinema just overtook him so that what was edgy and, and fresh when he began became so familiar that he was relegated to a lot of direct-to-video stuff, a lot of uh, straight-to-TV. Well, I think that's just – yeah. Mm. It's possible that everybody caught up with him. Yeah. I mm. mean he – I haven't seen a lot of the later ones because I guess I didn't want <laughs> he was my sort of cinematic god and I yeah. and once once I started hearing that his films were being bad, you know, not not even released and being bad mouth, I was like, Oh no, I don't want to see them. I did watch Insignificance though and oh, yeah. that was in nineteen eighty five and I thought it was utterly brilliant. Yeah, um, I like that one. I only a saw lot. it on television. Mm. Yeah, but I and I know it's a play and mm. it feels like a play, mm. but he's his performances are just extraordinary. And I and it's worth seeing just for Teresa Russell 
playing Marilyn Monroe and explaining the theory of relativity to mm. Einstein. Yes. I mean, it's an amazing sequence and uh, she's just so brilliant and I think <laughs> it really helps explain the theory of relativity. And that makes sense because it's such an affecting film because it comes from a fantastic text, a very well-chosen adaptation, Terry Johnson's play, which had premiered three years earlier, actually with Judy Davis, I know. Uh, another she Australian the in, in the role of the actress. Um, oh, I would have loved London. to have seen that. <laughs> um, and then The Witches, you know, comes from Roald Dahl, one of the most adaptable of writers, a cinema industry in himself. And then of of the really late films, probably for me, Heart of Darkness, mm. although it, you know, it fails on every criteria of not being apocalypse now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you never did say to anyone, you know, <laughs> Nicholas Rogue's adaptation of Heart of Darkness would be the least hallucinatory one. Um, <laughs> no, you wouldn't think that, would you? <laughs> The, the way he's got these really strong texts he's he's drawing from, um, and he he did do some more TV movies of plays like Sweet Bird of Youth. Mm-hmm. All his obsessions and interests and powers come together, but then that the sort of the Teresa Russell years where he just seems to be pursuing sort of variants of this quite unpleasant to watch story about um, female masochism and sexual insanity uh and i you know track 29 is actually the film that turned me on to alternative cinema i saw it on moving home very late when i was babysitting (laughs) one night and i just used to to flick through the channels in a two-week period i saw track 29 and robert lepage's tectonic plates and that was it that is how i became a cinephile which is really weird um so it has a very special place sort of in my memory for me but when i rewatched that i was like oh uh." (laughs) you know uh, christopher lloyd spanking sandra bernhard or being spanked by sandra bernhard um (laughs) over over a train set and you're never clear whether gary oldman is real or not is he Teresa russell's son does she have sex with him you know it's it's like that that those sexual obsessions of the 70s that's Mm. what dated really badly for me yeah right (laughs) but i think what you've got i I remember when i took uh like when bad timing came out Mm. um which is speaking of Teresa russell she's extraordinary in that Mm. um i was 20 years old and i was going to rusden state college learning how to be a well, I didn't really want to be a teacher, but that was it. I was doing a media teacher course until I managed to get into AFTRS. And I was obsessed with this film, and I made all my friends go and see it, <laughs> and my boyfriend at the time. And um, I remember after about the fourth time I'd seen it, and I took <laughs> my boyfriend finally got to see it with me, and he's like, okay, I'm really disturbed. Why I, Why do you love this film so much? <laughs> and I, I, was, I was really surprised. I didn't know why he thought I was disturbed. And then I watched it again recently and I thought, okay, now I know why he asked me that. Because <laughs> it's so much about a, a really horrific, controlling, sadomasochistic relationship. But I'm like, I, I can see why he was a bit worried by that. <laughs> but, but I think what I liked about it was it was so... Look, the, the editing is extraordinary. You know, they'll be cutting like it cuts between this most disgusting tracheotomy mm. um, and love scenes, and and you sort of go, 
Right. Okay. Um, that's how you see life. Right. Okay. Mm. <laughs> it's a mixture of medical or clinical violence and like fevered passion. At least he's being honest. You know, this is this is yeah. how he clearly wanted to tell this story. That some relationships are incredibly dysfunctional and very, very, you know, unhealthy. But in a, such a gothic way, it makes for a great story. I mean, Shakespeare kind of did similar things. Without all the graphic sex, but mm. <laughs> very brave boy, you know, Nicholas Roke. He, he and Ken Russell really wanted to push the envelope, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm amazed he didn't adapt any Shakespeare. It kind of feels like that was that was in his stars a bit. It's, um, I mean, he adapted. God, he adapted Samson and Delilah, and uh, and never doubt my commitment oh, to yeah, this show because I sat through all three hours of that. Uh, Elizabeth you Hurley as uh, Delilah, yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> um, how was it? I don't, uh, let me just uh, say if you, if if you want to hold on to uh, Rogue as like one of your favorite filmmakers, maybe this is one to yeah. skip. Yeah, yeah, I was scared of that one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was the Rogue Rogue, was it? That's it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. 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 Um, but look, there are still interesting. Oh, well, sorry, I just wanted to mention uh, like two deaths from 1995. The Harold Pinter adaptation oh, yeah. is is with uh, Michael Gambon is just fascinating. Like I don't know if it works, but I couldn't look away. It's it's a real. Oh, I'm definitely going to watch that. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a sort of weird read on Death of the Maiden. It's like Harold Pinter decided he had to have his own post dictatorship sexual tension play mm. on film. Wow. But I felt like it, unlike Death of the Maiden, it never fully makes the connection between what's happening outside the room, which is the fall of a dictatorship in a, in a sort of vaguely East European country that might also be in Latin America, and uh, yeah. and what's going on inside the room. But but Rogue never lost his eye for an actor, apart omitting uh, the Liz Hurley story. Mm. You know, My- Michael Gambon. It's it's an extraordinary one of the best. role for him. Yeah. Mm. And he gave you know, Isaac like any... to Bancolet Banco an early role in uh, Heart of Darkness. Yes, that's right. Oh, right. Yeah. I just want to, yeah, you mentioned the book he wrote, The World is Ever Changing, which is, um, I, I love because it feels like, I, I mean, I think he actually did dictate it into a microphone, but I don't think anyone edited it afterwards. It's very stream of consciousness. No. <laughs> so he goes, uh, Are you kidding? Oh, no, I'm going to have to read oh, it. It's, it's worth, like, there's this, one, there's this one passage where he goes, the movies have embraced every art form and every way of telling a story, both in fiction and reality whatever that is, we are now about to enter another era of existence. Who knows? Maybe future space travels will simply find the Earth inhabited by shadows from what we call our past. I love that he talks the way he makes films. He's jumping around, but it's profound. Yes. Yeah. I, I should add that that paragraph is in the introduction. Yeah. Not the conclusion, that's like one page in. Yeah, we're just getting started. But I guess yeah. he does. Like you said, he does. He Maybe he speaks like he makes his films. Yeah. That's Look, I have to say that that's part why I love his films is that they they feel so personal they feel like somebody wrote this film but wrote it with the with the language of cinema you know what I mean mm. it's 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 so much his voice and you can really feel it it's not like you could never call his films generic or um you know like anyone could have made this film it's it's so Nicholas Rogue <laughs> his yeah. movies they 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 just ring of him and um, I guess that's why it was such a profound experience for me as a young girl to see uh, f- films that didn't just tell a nice, safe little story. You know, they were 
I got to see, I'm very grateful that I got to see such extraordinary independent filmmaking at a young age because it definitely, Nicholas Rogue is, is, is why I wanted to become a filmmaker. Mm. It was his movies. And um, because I think I really, I related to them actually. You know, he speaks with his camera. His camera is like a pen. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he actually will sometimes do these random shots of things, but they don't, I mean, somebody might say they're random, but I always feel that they're showing me something for a reason. They're showing, like in bad timing, there's a, suddenly there's this close-up where Denim Elliott looks at a brooch on Teresa Russell's jacket as, as she's leaving him, uh, leaving their marriage, and it's just a hand with a, with a wedding ring on it. And nothing's made of it. Just he just decides to show you the brooch, mm. <laughs> and then that, the movie goes on. And uh, it's th- just little things like that that mm. make him different from other filmmakers. When when you told us you were you were going to go with Rogue, um, the the first thing I thought of was the opening of the dressmaker, and I thought, oh, I can <laughs> I can see it. I can see it a little bit in the DNA. Uh, I can see oh, the really? oh, yeah. Well. I'm flattered. <laughs> well, there's a bit of a Teresa Russell and Kate Winslet, I guess. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and you know that when uh, when I wrote a little-known film that uh, PJ and I made together called Unconditional Love, mm. if you ever watch it, unfortunately, like like some of Nicholas Rogue's films, it, it went straight to video. <laughs> so I don't feel so bad if I know my hero. That happened to him too. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm really proud of this film, and it's within that film, which stars Rupert Everett and Kathy Bates and a myriad of other people. There is a tribute to Don't Look Now. There is actually a um, a little person in a red raincoat that runs around. Um, oh my god! <laughs> except she actually she discusses Don't Look Now in the film, and she says it's a horrible <laughs> film about a psychotic war. <laughs> Never seen. Never see it <laughs> because she's actually a little person in a red raincoat and she deliberately wears this raincoat to uh, disturb people. That's perfect. So, well, so you know, watch it and you'll see what I'm talking. That's my little <laughs> tribute to Nicholas Rogue. Excellent. Everyone go get it. that, but I wrote it. Well, hopefully he'll be listening in um, and he'll seek that film out. And uh, and watch it. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> but I I really just hope I, I I every time I do any kind of film course where I have to give talks to film students, I do screen the man who fell to earth. I say, look, this was a seminal film for me, and half the audience usually you know complains about headaches by the end of the film because mm-hmm. of the intercutting and i always call them wusses <laughs> um and the other half are like blown away and, and say oh my god i didn't i never knew about this film i'm gonna have to watch all these other films i'm like yes yes you do <laughs> <laughs> well, i think 2016 has been kind of a version of your film course <laughs> bringing the man who fell to earth back into a lot of people's consciousnesses so it feels really opposite and really special to, to come to the end of the year and uh and have that film back on the menu and didn't it recently get a was that the one of his that got a 40 year can you really believe 40 years um uh, re-release on or was that um oh, one of the others maybe that was don't look now one of them has recently been re-released on um a brilliant 4k i think it, yeah um, i think it might be yeah. right yeah yeah 
Yeah. So it's there's probably a really gorgeous version of it out there. I might have to order one. Mm. So how does pay for its Christmas shopping list? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> unconditional love, the 4K man who fell to earth, yeah. and everything else. You will rogue. enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, the world is ever-changing by Nicholas Rogue. It's a complete <laughs> oh, package for the film lover in your life. There you go. <laughs> I might have to hint every to my, to my hubby to get that for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Jocelyn, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, look, that was my pleasure. And we'll see the rest of you next month. 